All right, everyone, just a couple quick updates here. Wanted to make sure that you are always abreast of discounts, updates, and benefits that you get as part of being a part of the Art of Coaching family. One, don't forget that if you use code BRETT20, that is B-R-E-T-T-2-0, BRETT20, at livemomentous.com, you will receive $20 off your first order of anything. And guys, Momentous is the proud nutrition partner of Art of Coaching. They support everybody from Alex Honnold, the first and only, at least at the time of this recording, person to have ever free free soloed El Capitan. They support NBA and NFL teams, members of the corporate space, anybody that needs good nutrition. And guess what? That's all of us. So they're NSF approved. Uh, They have been vetted at the highest level, no banned substances. It's all grass fed. They have vegan options. I mean, it feels like everybody has a million allergies and things now, right? Like, so whether you're gluten-free, oxygen-free, whatever free, they have it. So make sure to go to livemomentous.com, check them out, use code BRETT20. Another thing, don't forget, if you are signed up or plan on signing up for an Art of Coaching Apprenticeship, that's my two-day workshop, you get $180 off just by passing my online course, Bought In. We do that because a lot of what we talk about in Bought In, especially around organizational psychology and the influence tactics and human behavior, that is the foundation of what we're going through at the apprenticeship. So it really does help. We don't require it, but it really does help if you have gone through that. And as I've said a million times, those principles are universal. It does not matter whether you're in banking or technology, you do not have to be a strength coach. Nothing about the art of coaching is for strength coaches only. I use the term strength coach and athlete because that's the foundation of what I've done as a profession for a long time. But just as many of you have read books by Navy SEALs or uh, tech guys in Silicon Valley, you do not have to be those things for those things to apply, right? So please make sure you understand you get $180 off the price of an apprenticeship just by passing the exam on bought in. And we make it that you pass it, not just that you've taken it because way too many people just do stuff and never finish it. We want people to finish because that's the kind of folks we want at the apprenticeship. So $180 off. You also have early bird discounts. If you sign up for an apprenticeship four to six months early, guys, four to six months early, you'll get $200 off. Two to three months early, $100 off. So one time I told somebody this and they still asked, do you have any discounts? I'm like, bro, you can get $380 off just by passing a course that I've created and by signing up four to six months early. If you need more of a discount than that, I don't know what to tell you, right? This thing can't be free beyond a certain point. Um, So make sure that you are using the discount codes for Momentous, Brett20. Make sure that you are checking out our apprenticeship. You can always email info at artofcoaching.com if you have questions. Lastly, coalition members. Coalition is my six-month accountability group. Professionals from all over the globe, we meet twice monthly. Uh, We have a meetup in Atlanta or uh, we go different places as well. The end of those six months, it is a network of individuals. Again, do not have to be strength coaches who are all trying to help each other overcome certain challenges in their personal and professional life. So whether you're trying to put together a business plan and you could use somebody to look over it, whether you're trying to go out on your own, whether you are just transitioning and taking a new job, whatever, you know, it could be anything. Some people just want a network of people to talk to. So we've vetted that, created that, and we have an application only uh, membership group called The Coalition. If you're a part of that, you get a ton more free stuff. So guys, there's a lot of things here. We're also considering, we'd love to hear your feedback, 
um, creating a membership site. The big reason for this is I cannot always get to every Twitter uh, DM, every Instagram DM, and we wanna make sure that we consolidate these conversations because if I answer a question for one person, that doesn't help the other thousand or other 10 or other whatever that have that same question. So we're really creating a special community. We wanna create something great for you. It's all at artofcoaching.com. Please be sure to check it out. And now enjoy today's episode. Thanks for listening to me babble. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I wanna thank you for joining me, and now let's dive into today's episode. What's up, everybody? I am here with Julie Ebensteiner. Julie has been a friend of mine for a couple of years now, although it's funny, we only really got to put face to a name uh, earlier this month. Julie, how are you? I'm great. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to jump on here. I've, I've always respected the way that you plant a flag in the ground. You take kind of you know a very informed approach, but you also are not scared to show your personality and speak up about things. So it's, it's excellent to have you on the show. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity, Brett. No, absolutely. So Julie, can you give us a little bit of information about yourself so anybody that hasn't heard of you can get some context? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, physical therapist by profession, but that was kind of a a journey to get there. So um, I I was a college athlete, um, really liked being around athletics, really liked the human body. Um, So I was thinking physical therapy initially when I was in college. Uh, I also got, uh, I had some really incredible uh, coaching mentors in the sport of soccer that now looking back at things, it was, I was really lucky to come across some of the people, um, in my life that I have, uh, and now realize it. Um, so I kind of went down a coaching path, um, and went through all my coaching licenses on the U S soccer federation side of stuff, uh, got into college coaching or had an opportunity to, to coach in college right out of, uh, right out of, uh, college took that and ran with it. Um, and then came back, to Minnesota, um, where I'm originally from. Um, and then, uh, uh, ended up going to, to PT school or opting then to, to take the route of going back or going to PT school, went through that, um, graduated practice in an orthopedic clinic for a year, uh, working with athletes, got really frustrated, uh, just by the, some of the limitations to be able to effectively rehab athletes. Uh, so I just uh, I quit my job one day and uh, supplemented my income coaching, uh, very high level uh, youth and then uh, uh, division three level, which I've been coaching for a number of years now for soccer, women's soccer. Um, and then I opened up my own facility. Uh, 2015, I, I, 2010 is when I when I left my uh, left my job. 2015, I opened up my own facility. I've been subleasing some space out of other places before then. Uh, and now the current facility I have right now is about 7,000 square feet. It's about, uh, five minutes from the university of Minnesota and down uh, near downtown Minneapolis. Uh, I have five employees or I should say there's five of us. There's four other employees. I kind of, I view myself as part of a team, not like a, uh, the, the master overseeing the, uh, <laughs> not, level not below. The yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then we, you know, half of what we do a little more than half of what we do is 
is performance-based training uh, for athletes, mainly mainly high school, um, and then a good chunk of college that are coming back right now, some pro, some international level athletes, but the majority is, is really the high school athlete who's looking to compete in college. Uh, and then the other part of it, obviously, is the rehab side. And I have decided to, to specialize almost entirely in the lower body injuries. And about 85% of my patients are, are ACL injuries. So and we just blend it all together. We have a, we all are on the same team and uh, we, we use all the different perspectives and blend it all together for the better of the, the athlete. The one thing that I am quite a bit different on, um, I don't take insurance for uh for the physical therapy side of stuff so we get that out of the way we try to make the athlete the center of everything we do uh, and try to take on a team approach and have some fun <laughs> so unpack that a little bit for me you know wh- why not well, why don't you take insurance what is the alternative to that look like what benefits does that offer i mean it's, it's interesting right because i i know there's another friend of mine he actually it's funny he has a book he called it f insurance and it's not a space that I play in. So I'm relatively uneducated, or at least was until he elucidated why he went that route. But for anybody listening that that maybe isn't in that realm, or even people that are and are kind of exploring that option, could you unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah, for sure. So, and it's interesting, because when I get, when I get uh, college students that are interested in physical therapy, and they're like, wow, this is really cool. I like the way you do things. And I ask them, well, what do you know about insurance? And how do you know about how insurance is going to affect the way you can treat patients? And they're like, we really don't have any clue. They don't even understand. And a lot of people don't. And I was guilty of it, too. Don't even understand how like health insurance works a lot of the time and what a deductible is and what a premium is and, and that sort of thing. So for insurance, for me, um, when I was working in an insurance based clinic, there, there's lots of layers of this, and this could be a, a, a two-hour conversation itself. <laughs> so, so in an insurance-based clinic, um, you have to document everything you're doing, um, which is good, obviously, uh, and you have to have a rationale behind everything you're doing, which is good, also. But the insurance company is going to dictate how much they pay for it and what it's really valued. The problem is, um, they will pay different things. They'll pay different amounts of money to different PT practices purely based on the size of the PT practice. So you have a big orthopedic practice, the, uh, uh, an insurance carrier, say insurance carrier A, will pay a big orthopedic provider one amount for a one-hour eval- PT evaluation, and they'll, they'll charge uh, the, uh, the smaller business something else. So there's not even an even playing field on that. Um, and the, and Which, the, that, would, that would then impact the price that you have to charge the people seeking care, right? That uneven distribution of resources makes you guys have to have a higher price, even though you have a higher standard of care than a lot of these, like, it almost is like a puppy mill. Those, those (laughs) huge insurance based claims. That's how I look at it. I remember like- I call them the tread or uh, conveyor belt. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know that though. I didn't know that, that the insurance company will dictate everything based in part on the size of the practice. Right, because they can go like a big orthopedic group can go to an insurance company and say, "Well, you're not going to get all, uh, you know, you're not going to, we're not going to have you as a as a carrier for our patients, and they're going to want their patients because of the size of them, right? Where the smaller the smaller ones going to try to negotiate with these big insurance companies, and the insurance companies are like, "Well, this is what we're going to offer, take it or leave it." you know, and then they're kind of stuck. Well, this is how it affects things both on, on both sides of it, whether you're big or small, and you're the actual PT practicing. If uh, the insurance company is 
the insurance company is going to dictate how much they pay and what you can do and what they're going to pay for. So then you end up having to see like 18 to 20, sometimes 30 patients in a day. You're just cramming them into your schedule. So I would literally sit, uh, I would sit down with a patient and I knew I only had 30 or 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, but usually it was 30 or 45 minutes. And I had to get, I had to get their background on stuff, where they were at, get through the whole physical exam, all this other stuff. And there's only certain things they pay you for. And one thing they don't pay you for on follow-up visits, they don't pay you for just chatting with them, you know, to figure out. Well, sometimes I need to get all that background information because you can, you can learn. And a lot of times that'll lead you to what you, what you need to, where you need to go with the treatment or even the approach to, first, just getting to know the person, right? Because if you can't, if you can't relate to a person and can't get on board and can't develop trust, forget it. It doesn't matter what treatment you have. Right. So, um, so you got all the, you have less amount of time. Um, you can't get as much out of it. You're just, you're literally trying to get through your day, throw some exercises at them, you know, hope they get a, you know better by it, but then you're on to the next patient. And then it's just, it's just high volume. So I am, I have learned that I'm wired that I would rather do something really well then um, just try to get through my day. And if I can't feel like I'm doing something really well, it will stress me out. Um, and I don't run away from that. That's just how I'm wired. And some people can do better where they have multiple things coming at them at once. That's not me. So it got to the point, and I worked for a very good, the company I worked for, they were great people. I still know the owners. Um, it was a multi-location, uh, privately owned facility. But I I just dreaded going to work because I just felt like I was just, I literally just felt like I was getting through my day. So one day I just, I just quit and I, I supplemented my income coaching and I decided, you know, I was going to try to find a different way of doing stuff. Ironically, I had a, 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 a athlete I was coaching at the time who did tear their ACL um, and was a very high level player on the youth, youth uh, level with the, was in with the U16 national team at the time. Um, and then I rehabbed her on the side. And when I didn't have insurance dictating everything I could do and how much time I could spend, I realized like my rehab with her was way more effective than what I could do with a similar patient in the clinic when all, with all the barriers of insurance and then also the barriers of space. So my facility here, one of the biggest things I wanted was space. Um, so, you know, you can get athletes moving, you can get athletes getting back to what they're, they're supposed to do on the field. And that's not, you know, in a confined medical type space. It's so fascinating when you look at that, because when you go to conferences and clinics, and let's say we're discussing ACL rehabilitation, return to play practices, I guarantee the majority of either strength coaches or physios wouldn't think about those things being constraints, right? Like it, they wouldn't think about like, well, the type of model that you set up, um, you know, when trying, whether it's a direct pay model or the various hurdles that you have to overcome when you are doing combined PT and SNC model, like that being a factor. Most people just think, oh, it's the exercises you use. It's the knowledge of that practitioner. It's how well the surgery was performed. But this really is a, an example of how something outside of our traditional view could dramatically impact return to play procedures and protocols that are able to be implemented, is it not? Yeah, for sure. And especially with athletes. And you know what the interesting thing is, is I don't even think a lot of well, first of all, PT school doesn't uh do justice for uh for rehab in the sports setting. So you get such a, uh, just a tiny snapshot of what, what is involved with just basic sports PT. And, right. and, and, and to be fair, the, the field of physical therapy is so all encompassing. I mean, in, in a three-year doctorate, you're trying to learn 
about, uh, you know, like progressive diseases, like how are you, how are, you know, what's the best way to, to help people who have dementia or Alzheimer's, but then people who have MS, but then people who have, who have, uh, you know, spinal cord injuries that just crashed their motorcycle or fell out of a tree or, you know, or fell off their roof and then cancer patients. I mean, and then, you know, you name it. So there, it is so all encompassing. So it's a lot to jam into three years, but then a lot of times to back to your question, you know, they don't know on the sports side of things, you, they're only a lot of times PT is only scratching the surface and especially with ACL rehab, a lot of PTs don't even know that these dimensions be on. And that's where you need people from the strength and conditioning field and the sports performance field and the sport coaches field of the actual athletes of the sport they're getting back to. Because if you don't know what all these other levels beyond, beyond, you know, just basic strengthening, you're totally missing the boat and you're doing a disservice, you know, to your patients. So um, you know, one of my, when I, early on, when I, when I, uh, started off on my own, um, yeah, I had, I had rugby, like very high level rugby athletes. Um, I needed a rehab. I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue about rugby. I've seen it on TV. Didn't understand it. I love the sport now. I'll be once I got to learn about it, but man, like I, I had to dig in and watch and figure out positionally what was involved with the, with the athletes. And then get an understanding of what, you know, what their strength and conditioning at the U S level is like, and the, the standards they need to get back to. Luckily I had a lot of, I had a lot of uh, experience with sport and with coaching. Uh, so I could fall back on some of that as I tied it all together. But yeah, I mean, on the sports side of stuff, uh, it needs to be a team approach with strength and conditioning. And like I said, a lot of, a lot of PTs, when you come out of, out of uh, school, you, there you you if unless you have a a big background in in athletics um there's a huge gap uh as far as for the return to play stuff and i think that's part of the reason why our outcomes right now aren't stellar they're getting better for sure and there's a lot of great people in the field but we got a ways to go yet it reminds me of one of my biggest uh, inspirations a, a gentleman that if i could only have you know when people say hey if you could have lunch or dinner with anybody in history who would it be one of the top, if not the top for me, would be Leonardo da Vinci. And he had a quote yeah. that I love that goes with what you're speaking to, where he says, wisdom is the daughter of experience. And it speaks to that, like these things that you can't learn during your formal education. And ironically, da Vinci was somebody who was never never formally educated, um, but you know that you find it, it, it leads to a better understanding of why when you see so many critics out there, whether it's of this model or this technique or this practice, Many of them, you know, don't realize what they don't know yet because they haven't kind of understood these models or they don't even understand the monetization, that insurance kind of that process. But, you know, change gears here for a second, because you touch on some points that uh, my good friend and I know you know him as well. And he's been on the podcast, Dr. Matt Jordan. You you have a lot of unique knowledge around ACL rehabilitation. And uh, for anybody that's not familiar with Matt Jordan, go back and check out the previous episode. Um, we say that he is the Drake of, <laughs> we just call him the Drake of performance. And part of that is a, a joke. And part of that is a compliment, but you got to bust Matt's balls, but talk to me a little bit more about like your stance on ACL rehabilitation, what you're seeing with return to play practices. I mean, in essence, just kind of go off on this. Cause you gave a great presentation on this at Corey Van White's conference. And I think, uh, other people would have benefited tremendously from, from hearing that go. Yeah. Oh, geez. That, another one that could be hours long. Um, 
and and th- man, Matt Matt Jordan and I'm just constantly learning from people. So people like him are leading the way on stuff. So I just try to not, you know, I try to be the dumbest person in the room and just just soak up information. But yeah, on the on the what's the missing piece here? Uh, objective testing would be a big one. So so many, and this goes back to this the conveyor belt style PT on a lot of things and, and high volume clinics and people, like, I don't know, you know, the thing I, with having my own clinic and stuff like this is really a passion of mine. Uh, it's not a job I go to every day. And I think that there's a lot to be said about that, that you can just dig into stuff a little bit better, but yeah. So with, with, uh, with ACL return to play big, big things were missing. First of all, the, the re-injury rates are, are not, great for very high level athletes. So these ACL surgeries are becoming so common that it's like, Oh, you know, so-and-so had surgery. So-and-so had surgery. They all come back. But a lot of times the outcomes aren't as good as what people think. Uh, and there's a, for the younger population, which is my wheelhouse, I'm like right in the, the epicenter of, of the high risk population with a lot of my athletes being under the age of 20, a, a lot of them being female soccer players. Um, why are you seeing that though? Real quick, just to interrupt you. Why are you seeing yep. so many, uh, ACL issues with female soccer players in that age demographic? Um, I, I just think lack of physical preparedness is one of them. So I, and especially female soccer players are a lot of times just, un, you know, they're just under strong. Um, but then the other thing is there's, there's some genetic, there's some genetic factor for sure, because I see it run in families a lot. But the bigger thing is, is athletes are playing one sport um, there's just a lack of just physical preparedness and just general, I guess you could call it physical literacy. So there's not, they're, they're, if, if they were a car, they're, they're a F1 driver. That's, that's riding the same route over and over and over and over again with no pit stops. So eventually something's going to have to give. And if they don't, if they get thrown to a different route, they don't know how to drive it. And then they have a problem is it would be the best way I, that I could explain it. So that, that's the, the short answer. Um, but back to the return to play stuff. So a lot of people aren't even objectively testing. So one of the things I did when I when I uh, opened up my facility, I invested. I I knew people were returning to play and passing these these published studies um, on certain return to play tests. But I could tell that they were doing it and being successful in completely different ways. So they might get the same. So say say they were going to do a one hop test or there's a, there's a series of four hop tests on, on a, a single leg um, that are pretty well published. And they're definitely like a good starting point on stuff, but for just a basic one hop test, if I had, so I had a college football player that came in yesterday. Um, you know, he's, he has to hop, he has to hop one uh, on one leg, at, you know, on his right leg and stick the landing. And then we'll measure that. We'll measure, we'll give him five tries and let him, let him, uh, uh, land three of them. We'll take his three best. And then he'll do the same thing on his other side. And then we'll look at the symmetry of the two. So if he jumps, <laughs> if he jumps eight feet on, on one leg, you know, can he jump eight feet on the other? So the, the published, and then it kind of goes the same way with these other types of tests with multiple joint jumps. So if you, if you look at the symmetry, if he's getting, I've had athletes over and over and over again, especially high level ones, they'll get, a, they'll get close to hundred percent symmetry on that. So you would think like, wow, well, they're good to go. Those legs are equal, but they're going about it a completely different way. I didn't have a way of measuring it. So when I opened up a facility, I invested in a force plate and I invested in a high speed motion capture system. I had no clue how to run any of that stuff. And I just, I just knew I had to figure it out. Um, and I, I knew that I needed a way to, to objectively measure stuff so that I could quantify it. 
um, so I can make better decisions on things. And sure enough, now I'm finding that you can have 100% symmetry on those hop tests, and they could be, I mean, they could be, you know, 40% uh, off on their symmetry on some of their single leg vertical jump on a force plate and then their landing mechanics. When you look at their landing mechanics on their affected side versus their unaffected side could be completely different. But those were things that we weren't catching before. But to even back up from that, a lot of people aren't even doing the hop test. Well, I was going to say, can you break (laughs) down for anybody that hasn't uh, seen it, heard it, researched it? We have such a wide demographic of listeners and I want to make sure that they can follow along really really clearly. Can you kind of walk us through the hop test and, and the right way to set it up, what you tend to look at? Can you break that down a little bit for us? Yeah. So, uh, so it's something as simple as a tape measure and a couple pieces of duct tape or a roll of duct tape. So, <laughs> to, uh, you know, to, uh, have an athlete on the, say they had a, a right footed ACL, they're going to stand on their, I usually go on their, on their left side first, their unaffected side first. And this is well down the, the path of return to play. This isn't something we're doing at two months. Um, sure. so, but you know, so they would hop, say it's a six foot tall athlete that on the left foot, they're just going to, they're going to stand behind a line. They're going to hop and land, uh, and you're going to measure where they land. They have to stick the landing. Okay. Then they're going to do the same thing on the right side. Okay. Then they're, they'll do that three times or they'll have five time five chances to land three on each side. And then so you're going to three continuous hops. No, just one hop. Just on this one first hop one. right yep. now. Got it. Yep. So, and then just looking at the symmetry between the two and then the, you know, trying to look at the quality of the landing, but you can really only quantify the distance, right? Sure. That's one test. So the second one would be then three consecutive hops. Yep. And then you look at the total landing um, and then, but they have to stick the landing. So uh, the next one would be uh, a cross, a three hop crossover. So again, all on one leg, but they have to cross over the line each time they hop. So there's a bit of a zigzag to it. Same, same setup. And then the last one that's published is called a six meter time hop. So you measure out six meters and you, you just time them how long it takes them to hop at full speed from, from one side to the other. So those are the published tests. And right now, those are published tests that are in a lot of research. And if people can pass those with about 90, 90% symmetry, and then also looking at uh, quad strength and having their quad strength 90 to 100%, that, will, that alone will help a lot. But I know with the population I'm working with right now, because there's a lot of people that don't even do any of those tests, um, but with the population I'm working with, they can still pass those tests with flying colors, and I'm catching crazy asymmetries with the force plate and uh, motion capture system yet. So, well, and so talk to me about this too, because, you know, I remember one of the earliest articles I had read and it was by Charles Poliquin. It was variety and strength training, although it's out there by a different name as well. I remember one of the things he talked about is in your programming, you know, for a, for a otherwise healthy athlete, just to orient everybody, he said, you know, we have to make sure that we represent, we have a wide variety of contraction types represented. Now, we all know that any muscle action is quote unquote triphasic in nature. That's not new nomenclature, despite the fervor, right? Like everything, if we're lifting weights, you're going to see uh, a concentric and eccentric and even an isometric portion. But Poliquin broke it down really well. He's like, the emphasis should be, you know, 70% normal kind of what we consider concentric oriented lifting, uh, 20%, there should be a representation of eccentric and then 10 isometric. Now this is general, right? This was something general that he spoke to. And of course, now we've seen the popularization of different programs out there that break these things up into their constituent parts to make sure that we accumulate a certain amount of loading in all those. And those are emphasized, but here's my question, right? Just let's take it back to soup to nuts, good, no nonsense programming. When we're talking about quad strength, and you and I have talked about this before, and Matt Jordan talks about it in one of his uh, presentations, 
for every 1% increase in quad strength, we, we see a 3% reduction in risk of ACL tear. Now, when people start to prioritize their programming, let's take it from a healthy athlete first, and then let's look at a return to play athlete that's a little bit farther down the line. How are you recommending that people still structure those elements of uh, eccentric focus, isometric focus, and traditional just normal lifting tempo, if there is such a thing? How are you looking at those things? And where do you see people tend to go a little bit off the rails with it? Maybe they're going, they're, they're not thinking big picture enough and, and they're getting a little too crazy. And on the other hand, on that side of the spectrum, where maybe people not emphasizing it enough, just so somebody listening can get an idea of like, wow, I've never really thought about that with my programming. What, what she's saying makes a lot of sense. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit, what you'd like to see? Yeah, with with my well, early on, and, and it depends on where you are on the process. But you know, sure. early on, you're just trying to get range of motion and that sort of thing, and mo- most of it is more concentric or even isometric at times, just putting them at different joint angles. But yeah. then I I have a pretty once once I've got them through, you know, and they can move uh, just just functional, you know, just just squatting, hinging, you know, they got their basic just fundamental movement patterns back down. Um, you know, then I, I will have a significant focus on the eccentric and isometric phases up until they get into a later stage where they're, st- they're starting to get closer, you know, to that five, six month, five, six, seventh month mark. And then it's a big focus on rate of force development, but two, two ways, bo- both in force production, but then also ability to absorb. So I have a pretty pretty balanced approach on, uh, and I'm, I'm a big believer that you got to train the brakes before you, before you train the gas pedal. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of, you know, jumping down from things and sticking landings and then, then trying to combine the two. So, you know, jumping down and jumping somewhere else. Um, and I use a lot later in the state in that, in those stages, I'm using a lot of what I would call repetition without repetition, um, just to make sure that they're getting, um, what you would call differential learning. So just so they're starting to learn how to problem solve and not just repeating a same task over and over. So they're, 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 they're building up their, their uh, ability to independently solve physical problems their body's given, if that makes sense. No question. Yeah. Yeah. And when you do that eccentric emphasis on the high end and low end, where will you go? Right? Like I know for me, a lot of times, and again, this is, this is, let's say somebody walked in today relatively uh normal medical like I'll, I'll use an athlete i'm working with right now he's 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 been in the nfl for five years relatively healthy he's got a little bit of tendonitis just because he's a lineman and he's dealt with some stuff and but nothing truly uh, alarming in medical history strong guy meets all those kinds of traditional metrics of you know can can front squat around 1.75 body weight certainly can can back squat you know twice body weight with with good form and and not like a quarter squat or anything stupid um but when we look at him, you know, and we go through some eccentric, more emphasis phases, the longest I'll usually go right, wrong, or indifferent and for him is five to six seconds. You know, and I usually don't go below three seconds for a true eccentric. Where do you sit at? Because, I mean, this is something that the research is is variable, right? Like it's somebody asked me one time, it was funny, they were sitting in a conference and they go, I got a really dumb question. And I go, what? And he's like, it's funny, right? Like we know we know the definition of an eccentric muscle action. He goes, but has there ever been anything published on like, if we're using an eccentric based protocol, what really is the minimal effective dose time wise to be considered a true eccentric, uh, you know, protocol. And at first, you know, I was like, that's funny. You know, I go, I, I, I don't think it's all that important to get down to the second, but he brought up a good point, right? He did bring up a good point that even though 
we know what classifies as an eccentric um, muscle action. I don't know that there's been one that has shown, hey, you know what, beyond a certain minimum and maximum time under tension, we don't really see uh, you know, anything greater than we thought, unless I'm unaware. Have you seen anything that states that very firmly and, nope. and with a lot of research behind it? Yeah, no, I have it. I'm, I'm very much in your same camp of like three to five seconds on that, on, on the eccentric side. There's a lot to digest in this episode so far. I think you guys would agree. And one of the things that makes this podcast unique, hopefully is the fact that I encourage you guys to stop periodically, make sure you're hidden pause, take notes, or find five different ways you can apply something that somebody's told you in this podcast. So during this break, I also want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor, as always, Momentus. Momentus is a big reason why I'm able to give you guys uh, you know, a lot of the free content that I try to give you, whether it's on this podcast, whether it's in different articles I share, or anything else. And we try to make sure that we highlight not just who they are and what they do, but also what they have. Because I know you guys are busy. You don't always have the time to be able to look these things up, especially if you're driving. So we're going to talk about three main products Momentus offers just real quick. One is their standard way, and this is what's called Absolute Zero. Now, it's grass-fed whey isolate. It includes prohydrolase enzymes to help digestion. It's one of the things that right in the morning, it's it's what I'm going to tend to take. Uh, then they have Arc Fire, and this is meant to be the recovery after strength or intense workouts. This is also grass-fed whey isolate, a little bit of rice maltodextrin, D-ribose, uh, creatine monohydrate, and includes L-glutamine, and then also the prohydrolase enzyme blend, which again, if you're somebody that typically has trouble digesting whey or any kind of issue with dairy in general, this really makes this a non-event. I know this because my wife and my father have both had issues digesting some form of dairy or whey in the past, and both are able to use this without any issue, as are many of my athletes, the majority of which forget to eat breakfast the half the time. And this is something that we work on constantly, just getting them to eat real food. But I always make sure that I have some sample facts, uh, packs of Momentus with me so that I can get something in their system, whether it's that and a banana or anything else before we train. And then finally is Redshift. Now, Redshift is really about recovery after endurance workouts. And we'll do separate profiles on this in future episodes. This is grass-fed whey isolate, rice maltodextrin, D-ribose, potassium citrate, and also the enzyme blend. Now the point here is no matter what you're looking for, no matter what your goals are, it's just a matter of finding which combination of these and the timing of these is gonna work best for you. But remember, they are all NSF for sport approved. They're all informed choice approved. Guys, it's the only company I've ever gotten behind you know, publicly in, in this way because it's the only one that I've ever been able to put my full weight of endorsement behind. I, you know, I, I'm not a big product guy. I'm not a big supplement guy. I try to just encourage like, hey, are you, are you eating? Are you hydrating? Are you sleeping? But even with my schedule and as much as I travel, I realize that we all do need support of some kind. I think Momentus does an excellent job of that in an ethical, high-quality way. So uh, if, if you meet any of their team, make sure to thank them. Make sure to at least learn more about them. And now we're going to get back to the episode. Yeah, because otherwise it gets asinine. I think, you know, one time I got a question and somebody goes, would you ever do like an eight-second eccentric? And I go, dude, go try that. You know what I mean? Like, go. I go. Just keep it in. Keep it in your. Um, keep it in your program. You know, whatever it is. Let's say he's doing three reps by eight seconds or something. Whatever. You know, I go. Keep that in your program for three to four weeks and just go up and load each week. Right. You don't need to always mess with the eccentric because uh, you know people tend to get cute and mess up 
that mess around with the tempos all the time, but then they don't realize that you're already variable in load each week. If you're right. going progressive overload, you don't really need to get cute with the tempos that much. Um, I go, I go do that for a while. I go do that with a squat, <laughs> do that with a pull up, do that with this. And he's like, Oh yeah. After he did the first week, he's like, this is, this was asinine. And I'm like, yeah, like <laughs> some, some of your questions can be found out just by you training. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> there is this proliferation of, of coaches right now and, and practitioners in general. I'll use coach as a universal term, whether it's a physio or, or an actual strength coach, because I think a coach is a guide. But I think there's so many people not really training that they kind of create their own questions to that kind of confusion because they're not doing it. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and and I think um, um, oh, just lost my train of thought on it. I had a point and I just lost it. But the 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 eccentric side of stuff. Um, super important. Oh, I know what I was going to say, but with the, with a lot of the decision-making in there on the rehab side of stuff, even later, um, is it's going to be guided by the, the patient symptoms. So you can have the greatest plan, but if somebody's flared up, you know, you're going to have to throw that out the window on a given day and make adjustments on it. So, um, so that some of that just things can't always be just so cut. I know that that is that way with a, with a, just any athlete, but especially in a post-surgical athlete, and especially with a, someone who's at an ACL reconstruction, if it's been with a patellar tendon graft, um, you know, that thing can get pretty, uh, can get pretty variable on how they're, they're handling new loads and so, that sort of thing. So, uh, but the other thing, um, a lot of times with the, with the athletes that have, are coming off of ACL, especially a patellar tendon uh, reconstruction, uh, or not a, a ACL with a patellar tendon graft. Um, the, people aren't using eccentrics and isometrics enough to help to help with uh, with the anterior knee pain that the front of the knee pain that that comes along with that a lot of times. And that sometimes is your best friend is the eccentrics and the isometrics to help remodel that tendon. What exercises do you like best for that in order to facilitate those adaptations? Oh, I use a quite a few of them. I'll use. Um, I'll, I'll use just like 90, between 90 and 60 degrees, just, just like just a isometric into the wall. So you don't have to get fancy with it. So just a seated knee extension into the wall. Um, we're holding those we'd hold for probably 30 to 45 seconds a lot of times. Uh, and that's a good one. Just if people are, are flared up and just need a little bit of a pain relieving effect, that's been, that's been pretty effective. Um, I've used a uh, rear foot elevated, uh, holds in the bottom position of a, of a split squat. Um, I've used single leg, uh, putting people up on a slant board. So raising their heel. Um, but they're, they're standing up against a wall. So just a single leg wall squat with a hold, you know, at the bottom or a hold in their painful range. Um, so I, I've used all kinds of things where they're, they're having to, um, and they're not super fancy. There's a lot of them can just be body weight a lot of times. Right. Yeah, and you are seeing, I, I've noticed, especially in basketball populations, you are noticing a lot more coaches at least posting or sharing information of just talking about the slant board, whether it's squat, unilateral, bilateral yeah. uh, lately, aside from, you know, putting the ankle in a different position and what have you, and obviously changing a little bit of the stress and strain on, on the quadriceps and lower body in general. Talk to me, why, why do you think so many people are gravitating towards these slant-based squatting modalities right now, especially in the basketball side of things? Have you seen this as well? Uh, yeah, but I think part of it is we're coming full circle where before everyone was posterior chain this, posterior <laughs> chain that on everything, right? So now yeah. now people are going quad this, quad that, which I think there needs to be balance in the whole thing. And also it used to be taboo ever to do open chain. Oh, don't ever let anyone with an ACL ever do anything open chain where you're seeing the studies that are coming out on that as the stress on an ACL 
um, is very similar in a closed chain versus an open chain. So, um, you know, everything comes full circle. The biggest the pendulum continues. To uh, yeah. Yeah. And the, I don't know, the, the further I get along with this, the more simplified I get with things and I try not to get too fancy with things. And I, I, I really try to try to keep things pretty fundamental on stuff and just hit it, you know, hit the fundamentals really hard and you, you can do a lot with that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to transition into something and, and this is requires a fundamental approach as well, but it, it continues to be really hard for people. I think you talked about, you know, person centered coach centered coaching, you know, and, and especially how it can seem fluffy, but it's actually more intelligent coaching. Can you elaborate <laughs> on that a little bit in terms of what you mean there? Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, yeah. So looking at coaching from a, it's interesting because here with our coaching staff every Thursday, we've for the past nine months now, we meet every Thursday and we we've been working through, are you familiar with the 3d coaching Institute at all? Sure. Well, somebody had given me that book. I think after uh, conscious coaching was published, somebody said, Hey, you know, I think you'd like this book and they gifted it to me. Um, I read about three fourths of it. I didn't quit reading it because I didn't like it. I think just we moved and and then you got onto another book and I realized, oh crap, like I never finished that book. So I am familiar a little bit. Yes. Yeah. I got about eight books I'm half uh, read through right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the 3D, the 3D coaching is really looking at, uh, it's, it's looking at coaching from a person centered point of view or, a, or more of a transformational point of view. So um, instead of transactional, so it's not, you know, athlete shows up, and puts in hard work and I get paid for coaching. You know, it's not, it's not a, you do this for me and I do this for you sort of thing. It's a more of a, you know, we're going to be on this journey together uh, and uh, really, really look at the person uh, from, you know, from the physical, from the mental, from the, from the spiritual side of stuff. And I don't even mean that in like a religious sort of way, but just looking at all dimensions of the person Um, and looking at coaching that way. So, and I used to be more of the, you know, if everything looked neat and clean and everything was organized and everything was more, uh, directed, you know, then that must be a good practice where a lot, you know, now, now I've, uh, you know, changed and learned and, um, sometimes, uh, messy and sometimes, um, not so cut and dry on things will actually end up uh, having being more effective for the long term. So, so like in here, whether it's rehab or performance um, setting, you know, it, it's not we're coaching an athlete for their sport. It's it's more like we're coaching a person that also you know plays you know whatever X sport, and we're we're or and a lot and some of them we have some people that actually aren't uh, that aren't competing, uh, not very many, but we do but just helping them as a person and the skills that they're going to need through life. So, and you're going to get so much more from an athlete that, um, you know, if you take interest in what they're doing as a person first and you're there, they understand that you're not wrapped up in their identity as an athlete, but their identity of a person, you're going to get so much more beyond them. But the more important thing is the frustration you have as a coach is going to go way down. So like, if you got athletes who aren't showing up on time, you know, and then you get frustrated and you get the coach who wants to try to solve that problem by maybe like, you know, having the whole team run or, you know, whatever, yell at them, whatever, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to come up with a, with a, like a first dimensional solution when it's probably a, a second dimensional or a third dimensional problem. So, you know, is there something else that's going on on their life that you don't even know about, but you're so hung up on just the fact that they were, you know, late or whatever 
you know, so you got to you just getting to know more what is going on in a person's life and what their perspective is and get getting an idea of what they're going through, you're, you'll just get so much more out of them. Yeah, it is interesting to talk about that, though, a little bit in terms of transformational leadership, because, you know, that was a big, I remember hearing when people first started talking about transformational and transactional, and, and intuitively, it makes sense. But it also has been really interesting to read some of the literature, something that I've been working on, in terms of, you know, there's this really good article, and I think it came out of the UK, where it's talking about transformational leadership, is it time for a recall? And, you know, they talk about, and this is a little bit of a devil's advocate view, but it talks about, you know, these these four eyes, right? So like inspirational leadership is, uh, a, a lot of transformational leadership is really about uh, kind of giving people this moral, uh, how do I want to phrase this? Like, it's when one or more persons engage with other people that it's leaders and followers kind of raise one another to this higher level of motivation and morality, right? They they tend to always look at something like the arm around the shoulder and a little bit more really being around the person. But it's been interesting to see some of the arguments against this of saying that, well, you know, when you look at leadership in general, it's important to understand that it's never about one person, including the leader itself. Like if you look at leadership, it's about that context, the environment, the history of a team and organization, even the stakeholders, power brokers. It's how all those people interact to form what eventually becomes labeled as leadership. And a lot of that devil's advocate approach comes from this idea that all it really takes is one influential follower, somebody that like the team really looks up to. All it takes is one person and not really buy into the leader to kind of thwart a lot of transformational leadership. And the, the articles kind of suggest that like we have looked at leadership effectiveness solely from the standpoint of the leader, right? It's like people like other leaders are sitting here saying what makes a great leader, but they've forgotten about the perception of the follower. Like not every follower wants a, a motivational leader. Not every follower wants somebody that is just going to speak to like team goals and higher endeavors. There are some selfish athletes and individuals in the world that are going to be driven more by kind of their own mission. And so it's been something that like gets really fascinating to study because um, there's so much research on transformational leadership. And uh, <laughs> I, I might butcher his name, so I apologize if anybody that follows him really uh, uh, pervasively is watching this. But, you know, Dr. Jean Cote, he, he gives a compelling message about transformational leadership. But when I push back on it respectfully, I say, hey, but this doesn't always apply with elite athletes. And, and they admit they're like, listen, transformational leadership there's an argument to be made that it's really more effective with with youth athletes and kids and things like that, where once you do get into higher dimensions of sport and politics, there is a little bit more of the power dynamics you're going to inherently have to navigate, right? Like coaching a guy like LeBron James is going to be different than coaching like a 12-year-old stud or, you know, coaching somebody that's a little bit more aggressive in their demeanor is going to be a little bit different than coaching the eight-year-old that's still trying to find him or herself. Now, it's it's not in, inherently apples and avocados. There there are comparisons, but it's just an interesting space I've been diving into over the, the last few years to see how even transformational leadership can kind of fall on its face in certain contexts. Sorry to sorry to be long winded in that, but it's it's a fascinating space. What would you say to some of those things? Have you ever had to kind of play dirty in an ethical way, so to speak, to get somebody to listen? Or have you always been able to rely on a purely transformational model? Well, yeah. And I don't think, I think you can be transformational and you can still have standards. And I think you can be transformational and you still can, you can hold people accountable. 
And you can be, I think you can be transformational and I think you can be very direct with people. Um, so I think, I don't think transformational just means like, oh, you know, this is all for the greater good and everything, you know, kumbaya, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's true. I I think it's, it's more looking at how, um, I don't even know how to best describe it anymore, but, but looking, uh, like, this really like person centered value approach. Well, yeah, just meeting an app. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's not like it, you don't just, sh- you know, you're here, you're here to, you know, you showed up today, you paid, you paid me money for rehab. So you will do what I, I say sort of thing. Well, I've had to have the conversation with athletes of, 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 you know, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing here. What's going on? You know, like this isn't going to get you back to the court. This isn't going to get you back to the field. I can tell you're not. I can tell you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Let's have a conversation about it instead of, uh, you know, just just writing them, you know, writing him or her off as a as a lazy athlete. Sure. You know? Yeah. And, and that and that that what you said there coincides totally with what like uh, you know, like Burns and Bass kind of said. Like, it, there's three different but related components to transformational leadership: charisma intellectual stimulation and individualized consideration. So what you're speaking to is you can have that individualized consideration of standards and it's not always going to manifest itself in, in some kind of kumbaya approach. You've got to hold yeah. them accountable, but like that charisma can also manifest itself in different ways. I think a lot of times people think charisma is always feel good, you know? No, yeah. And I disagree with that. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think charismatic leaders can also kind of take that approach of like, you can, you can hold somebody accountable and I would even say have an argument with somebody while having elements of, of charisma to how you do that, right? It's all on how you carry yourself during that interaction, not always the nature of the interaction itself. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And that, and that's why I think it's such, you know, I'm glad that you brought this topic up because it is fascinating to see how easily we can misinterpret skilled interpersonal communication. We can think that like, all right, now at what point have we failed to periodize this you look at like what we do with return to play with people that come back from injuries. Well, what about return from conflict? You know what I mean? What about return yeah. from conflict where it's like we've had an issue with a coworker or a colleague or an athlete or whatever. How do we make our way? Cause that's, that's one thing that annoys me, Julie, to be honest with you is I I've gone to a lot of conferences this year and I seem to kind of now see this trend starting and there's always something new. It's like weather patterns where people are whining about silos and organizations. They continue to whine about like, Oh, you know, we have the right idea and performance, but everybody else in this organization is kind of an idiot or they're closed minded. And <laughs> yep. It kind of strikes me as odd that people think that this is going to be solved by, you know, because I'll, I'll raise my hand. I'll be like, hey, really interesting. And it is. But, you know, how are you solving this? Like, what's what's where are you starting? They're like, well, we're trying to look at the organizational structure and that's all well and good. But what good is organizational structure if you don't understand interpersonal communication at a high enough level that sometimes you just got to deal with shit the way it is. You know, a strength coach isn't always going to be able to influence something via the org chart of somebody else. Like, why are we passing the buck away from practitioners to be more skilled negotiators, more skilled at persuasion and this and thinking that like some kind of underlying structure is going to solve it? Why do we have this reliance on structures instead of skilled communication, do you think? App, because it's easier, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we well, in some, cool. in some, well, in some ways, it's just say, oh, we're just going to change the person out, you know. Yeah. Like yeah. so, the the like I hear it all the time. Like, how do you, uh, you know, 
you hear it from the, the strength coach who complains about the athletic trainer, the athletic trainer who complains about the strength coach, the both of them who complain about the sport coach, you know, and you see, you, you see it a lot with the, the sport coach who just wants to get rid of the athletic trainer because they, they just don't want to deal with them, you yeah. know, but so that's why I think we still have these issues is because it's easier just to get rid of a person sometimes instead of actually say, you know what, I, I need to develop a skill myself personally to try to figure out and problem solve this, this thought that, you know, this, this situation, um, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I'd urge anybody listening to this to consider that when you do go to these conferences and I don't care what field you're in, but when you see this tendency for people to try to seek control and say, Oh, it's the way we design this, or it's the way our organization, you know, a, a good friend of mine, and we're going to have him on the podcast, Jess Ells, he's with, uh, uh, <clears throat> Portland trailblazers. And I said, listen, man, what do you do to avoid, the silos up there. And I'll let Jess speak for himself in more depth when he comes on the show. But, you know, one of the things he said, listen, man, this isn't rocket science. He goes, you know, we go talk to the players and meet them where they're at. He goes, we, you know, I've tried to avoid an approach where I get in front of the whole group and show them or any of the other stakeholders a big PowerPoint of how we want to run things. He goes, I try to get people individually into my office and meet them one-on-one throughout certain periods of the year. He goes, or when they're shooting hoops or when they're doing whatever they're doing, I'll go meet with them. I'll just knock on the door and ask if they have time. He's like, because it's so much less threatening, you know, and so much less of this holier than now thing when you can actually go meet with the person instead of trying to promote this huge approach and make what you're doing in the performance or medical side of things, this centerpiece, even if you know it is in many respects, he's like, you can't make other people who are naturally insecure feel that way. You've got to go meet them. And he's like, and we kind of control the flow so that people have to walk through the medical part of the building. Now, some people may not have that. They may say, our building's set up the way it is. Well, great. Well, then go meet your athletes or these other individuals where they're at and have these candid conversations with them on their turf because you may find that they're more likely to listen to what you have to say when they're not in this place of intimidation of feeling like they've got to come to you or that everything's got to revolve around you. And so I thought that was fascinating as well. And, and he's had some years in the NBA where he's like, yeah, I, I've just got to, I've got to kind of play this low key and, and the indirect approach becomes the most direct approach. Yeah. And I had somebody come up to me at a conference this past weekend and they were asking, they had a, they didn't know how to communicate with the, athletic trainer or, or develop a relationship with the athletic trainer, um, to, uh, I guess work better with them, which it was good that they were, they were just asking like, you know, how's, how's the best way to approach us? And I said, you know what, the first question you ask, I said, first of all, go over, go over into their turf, exactly what you were saying. And then I said, the first question to ask is how can I help you help them? No one's going to turn away from that question. You know, how can I help you? But then we're going to help the athlete and just just see what they have to say. And that op- that is non that's non threatening. Um, that opens up the door that you want to know their perspective. But if more professionals, you know, just even opened up and wanted to to get people's perspectives first, I think it would help a ton. And I'll tell you, that social media is the biggest thing right now. Is everyone gets in their their funnels of their thought pattern. If you don't agree with them, then you're going to block them or whatever. And that's not helping things at all. So if we could all just want to just understand that everyone's coming from different perspectives, get into their shoes a little bit, spend some time and start to understand a little bit better. It solves a lot of problems. And by, uh, you know, what he was doing with the trailblazers, just making people even just walk through the space. I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Well, Julie, 
We've covered a lot of ground, and this is the exact reason I wanted to get you on, and you are definitely going to be due for a part two. I appreciate you being so candid and not, I don't know, it's just always nice when you can get somebody that the minute you ask them a question, one, they either are not scared to take the time to think on it uh, reflectively, or two, actually get really tactical and, and don't just say, yeah, we believe in you know putting people in different positions and focusing on eccentrics. Like You got really tactical and gave some key advice there. If people want to reach out to you directly and they want to learn from you or just connect with you, what are the best ways that people can uh, get a hold of you? Um, the website for my for for Loris, uh, my company is uh, uh, Loris Rehab. So L A U R U S Rehab dot com. So that's Loris Rehab altogether. Re- Loris Rehab dot com. Uh, they can find me on Twitter, uh, and it's just Julie underscore uh, E I B. Um, so those are probably the best ways right now. I'm on Instagram. I can't even tell you what the what my Instagram handle is. That's right. We put it Terrible. all in the show notes so everybody yeah. will have it. So, but yeah, I'm happy to help, you know, if there's, you know, people have questions or or whatever, or if someone has something that could help me, man, like let's get in touch. So, and I really appreciate Brett uh, you know, having the opportunity to 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 speak and to learn and interact. So, I would love to come back. <laughs> yeah, no, my pleasure. And guys, make sure that you seek her out. Again, you've heard uh, just a sampling of her expertise here, both on the tactical side as a practitioner and the interpersonal side. This is somebody that thinks really deeply about a lot of subjects. She's very much present in the moment when you're talking to her. And she's in today's world, she's not afraid to tell you what she thinks and she'll take a stand for it. And she'll admit if she's wrong, she's right. She's just trying to learn. So can't recommend you following her enough and reaching out to take the time. If you're in the uh, area, if you're in Minnesota, like make the time to go see her. Julie, thanks again. And everybody else, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Wait, 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 wait. Before you go, glad I caught you. Listen, there's a lot of people that think that I just have social media, podcasts, and and YouTube. Guys, there's so many more resources uh, if this stuff interests you. Um, first of all, if you haven't checked out the book, I'd be honored if you would. It's on Amazon worldwide. It's called Conscious Coaching. Uh, we have a free field guide. There's so many resources I try to provide online, free eBooks, free downloads. If you just go to artofcoaching.com, check out the free resources. There's also online courses. So whether you're interested in the coaching, communication, psychology side, we have an online course called Bought In. Uh, that is a great resource. It's research-backed, and it applies to every profession. You do not have to be a strength and conditioning coach. Literally, I use the term strength coach and athlete because that's what I do. But just like you read uh, an article or a book by a former Navy SEAL or somebody that owns a company in Silicon Valley, all these things are relatable to other fields. Also, if you're looking more into career management, whether that's you trying to learn more about marketing, contract negotiation, networking, resume writing, all these things that go into the messiness of trying to create and cultivate a sustainable career, we have a course for that as well. It's called Valued. Both of those are found on artofcoaching.com. Remember, the podcast and all these other things, you know, they're, I can only share so much and we try to do it in so many other mediums. So please, I'd be honored at your support. We try to make sure and donate a percentage of the proceeds every year to either fight Alzheimer's, uh, cancer research. We, uh, we donate to local police forces. We try to do a lot of different things and we can only do that with your support. Thanks again for listening to the podcast and I hope you enjoy those resources.